0: Welcome to Behind the
1: Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Did Mothman really predict the deadly collapse of a bridge over the Ohio River in 1967? Is he, she, or it predicting nuclear war now? What is prophecy?
0: Hello and welcome to the 1023rd, I can't believe that Ben, edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Benino coming to you from WOONAM and FM in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. And it's on the Paranormal Radio app, TalkStream Live, and on YouTube. And that of course was Benino. I'm Mark Antonio here to help things along. So
1: welcome to everybody. And also co-hosting with us today is Valerie LaFaso. So hi Valerie, Thanks for thanks for stopping by and helping us out.
2: Hi, Ben. Hi, Mark. I'm so glad to be here, as always. Love love being here on this show.
1: Well, we try to create a fun-loving atmosphere where we can delve into the deeper questions. And initially, we were going to have Nick Redfern on with us, but he, he could not be here today. And uh, my father is sitting this one out today because he has other obligations, so it's just the three of us here. So the question of how many Enos does it take to do a show is going to be one <laughs> today, which coincidentally, Eno is one spelled backwards. So we were going to be talking about Nick Redfern's latest research into uh, Mothman events because apparently he's he's cropping up again, um, but that's that's unfortunately not going to be happening, which I was very excited for. I didn't get a chance to to read any any of the new material, so because I'm I'm a big I don't know if this is a word a Mothman head, but <laughs> but I, I do I do so enjoy a good Mothman, um, and I, I guess what I can kind of do is give a little little spiel about Mothman. We can kind of dive into. Some different implications of it because it's a lot more intricate than just a weird-looking owl-type thing. Some people think it's an owl, some people think it isn't. But essentially, the whole case started. Excuse me. In uh, well, it's over the Ohio River, but it was it was in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, um, in in the late '60s, and it it initially started uh, with you know a group of teenagers. They were out you know one night just hanging out. And they saw this weird figure on the side of the road, and it, it looked almost like, you know, a man with these wings that almost looked like, you know, <laughs> some described it as a butterfly or like, you know, you they, they had like, you know, moth-like wings, right? So they thought that was kind of weird, and they, they saw it stuck to a barbed wire fence, and so they they thought nothing, they thought it was kind of weird, and they started driving a little faster, but then they 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 heard something on top of their car and it was following them and it was flying along with the car you know keeping speed with it so they're speeding back to to um speeding back to their homes you know they they try to make their way to the police department and along the way they kind of keep seeing it on tops of buildings and you know they go to the, they go to the cops and they're like we saw this like weird sort of like bug guy whatever and they uh they thought it was crazy but then right after that people started seeing more and more of this and not only that one of the really interesting things which um you know the late Susan Shepard Uh, told us when my dad and I went down, I, you know, I was like, you know, nine or 10 years old. We went to the Point Pleasant, uh, West Virginia. Um, when you go to the Mothman conference, we went to a a, a paranormal conference down there, which coincidentally is where we met Bud Hopkins. Um, and we, we spoke with Susan Shepard down there. Um, and she was, you know, she was a kid during all of this. And she told us, you know, you know, when I was a kid, you know, you, you would hear like footsteps on your roof you would see like eyes peering out from like under furniture through your windows and they were always red and they there was a whole lot of other stuff going on you know anything from you know men in black to ufo's to poltergeist activity to you know increased psychic activity you know classic flap area type stuff and it all kind of culminated with the collapse of um the ohio river bridge that you know connected west virginia to ohio and I believe that was on Christmas Eve as well. So it, it, it collapsed, and all the phenomena ceased. So there was this this idea that Mothman, you know, seeing Mothman was like a, like a, a, a prophecy, right? You know, hence where you get the Richard Gere movie for you know the Mothman prophecies, which was which was based on John Keel and his research of Mothman. And it was it was super interesting because it it almost coincides with the uh, myth of um, the Thunderbird. Uh, which I you know, I don't know if either of you are familiar with that. It was uh, in Native Amer- some Native American mythology, um, which essentially was mm-hmm. this, this giant bird that would predict, like, doom and um, all sorts of interesting things like that. And there's even, like, theories that, you know, Mothman was seen at Chernobyl, you know, in, in some pictures. You can kind of make out some sort of, like, figure of, like, the smoke over Reactor 4. Um, you can there's even been reports of Mothman being seen today around Chicago and, and all sorts of other things. So there's this this idea that you know, Mothman predicts like you know doom and, and, and such and something awful will happen. And it always coincides with other phenomena happening at the same time. And there's all sorts of uh, intricacies between it because after that initial weird figure was seen, the f- description of it changed. Went from being, you know, typical humanoid figure with wings to, you know, sort of like shoulders with like a little hump over it that kind of, that, that with just like these, you know, red eyes sticking out almost from the chest. And, you know, it still had the wings, but it would move silently, which was even more interesting. Where, you know, it would, it would, its wingspan would extend and it would just kind of move silently up and down. And, you know, it, in people who've, who've had interactions with it, they'll come away with, anything of of, you know terror or they'll have you know um, I'm I'm forgetting the guy's name but we had a guest on years ago who you know had an interaction with Mothman saw him and he became like a math whiz and an artist went from like you know a D student to like you know a mathematician (laughs) So it's it's really fascinating stuff, and I I think we've really only ever scratched the surface with it, you know, with our our book, you know, behind the paranormal 2, moth, uh, bigfoot, mothman, monsters you've never heard of, but you can get on Amazon. Um, because I, it's a good book. I have a copy. So does Val. She said.
2: Yeah, me too.
1: And I was uh, I had a, one of my buddies over last night, and he was like, oh, I have a couple of the Eno books, and I was like, oh yeah, which one? <laughs> He's like, oh, I'm trying to collect them all, uh, but it, it's. I, I was really hoping Nick would be here because i i do I do kind of like the whole idea of mothman, this sort of um you know interdimensional creature perhaps that I'd have to say perhaps because it could be anything right It could be you know this for all intents and purposes if if you strip away some of the other the other um accolades of it, you could say that you know it loosely fits the definition of angel right you know in a biblical sense. Or, you know, it could fit the definition of an extraterrestrial perhaps. Or, or the it, reaper. Or the yeah, right, or the or the grim reaper. <laughs> it, it could it could fit a lot of these molds. And I, I think it, it brings a broader question to to the fore, which is, you know, what is our, our modern mythos, right? You know, how do we define these creatures, and we we try our best to kind of come up with things, but we don't really have a united narrative of it, right? You know, a lot of other cultures in the past, and even today, you know, you still have like a united front for the unknown. Almost, it's like a, a buddy of mine from um, Southeast India, and he came here when he was like uh, I, I want to say he was like five or six, and he kind of went back and forth. And I, I remember we were, we became friends in like seventh grade and we kind of got each other and, uh, <laughs> friends ever since. And he, he was telling me, cause we were discussing, I don't know how we got on the subject, but we were talking about Bigfoot and he was like, yeah, I remember when I first learned about Bigfoot, he was like, you know, I, I was just like, oh, it's a Haruman, which is like, you know, a, an, an upright like ape like figure, kind of like a Yeti in, in Hindu mythology. And he was like, oh yeah, I thought everybody knew what those were when I was a kid he was like, yeah, it's just something that was there. And I, I thought that was a really interesting answer because it's like, you know, we, we try so hard to push all these things away with our, our fun little uh, materialist minds. Like, ah, science will figure it out eventually. And we'll, we'll, you know, what's happening here isn't what's happening over there. But I thought that the mythological mindset in, in, <clears throat> we will define mythology really fast, which is a story that we all participate in versus you know something fake or false right you know it's like oh it's a narrative to i i remember one of my uh, a close friend of, of of mine and my wife's is a is a priest he's a very smart guy but he's very very um very into aristotle he's very into categorizing things and i remember i remember i was tra- i was discussing with him um the implications of like ancient mythology and he was like yeah he's a smart guy he has like a master's and and he's you know not, not an idiot. He studied in Rome for like six years. But he was like, yeah, they were just trying to figure out lightning. And I was like, that's it? That's that's all you got? And he was like, yeah, it's just, you know, they were just trying to figure it out using logic. And, you know, the best they had was mythology. And I was like, I don't know if that's it, man. Because I, I think what's important is having having a story that we all participate in. I mean, we do, effectively, which is our our research in the paranormal. And trying to to figure out a a story that brings all this together. That's why we tell stories of of Mothman and the lesson of it, of, oh, doom is coming, right? But
0: Ben, Ben,
1: I have to to say,
0: when you think about, you know, participating in a story, how many stories do you have to hear from around the world that are similar Mm. before you decide maybe there's something to this, right? For example... Uh, I did a, a lecture years ago in Denver on halos around religious figures. Okay? Mm. And I'm certainly no expert on religious matters, but I was curious why the halo was turning up in all kinds of disparate cultures that never communicated with each other, yet there on their cave paintings, there in their artwork, there in Renaissance paintings, the deities all have halos around their heads. Mm. How is it that the Wanjana myth in northern Australia, the Darwin region of northern Australia, shows the creatures with big black eyes and halos around their heads? How is it that those show there when they never saw halos? They were never in communication with Western or Eastern cultures. Okay, Yet in Eastern cultures, deities have halos around their heads from different time time frames in India. Creatures, ha- you know, drawings show creatures with halos around their heads. The Valcomonica aliens, okay, halos around their heads. Renaissance painters show them all with halos around their heads. The halo is the ubiquitous feature that keeps showing up. What's causing that? See, now, that's a myth, of the Wanchita myth, down in uh, Australia. We have the Valcomonica mythos. Okay, In Italy, we have the Renaissance folks painting these halos, and they show up in many other cultures that never... Native American cultures. My mother was Native American, in part. So they show up in Native American cultures, too. Why was that being replicated if it wasn't observed? See? Mm. I think it was an observation that made it into their culture. And so... In other words, you talk about participating in a story that becomes a myth, right? And now you have people that are seeing their story from their culture's perspective, this one from this perspective. These two never talk to each other. So how come they have the same story as these folks in part, Mm. particularly the halo, right? I don't know, uh, Val, if you have anything to add to that. I mean, I don't know if you've seen this.
2: I've not and now you've have me very curious about that because I mean we see that with other things where cultures mm-hmm. that have never communicated as far as we know have commonalities in their religious beliefs or their practices or their architecture style or you know that sort mm-hmm. of thing so I find that very curious and and I love the question of how how often do you have to hear about something before it come becomes you know this thing that we believe in, or that we don't believe in, or that we fight over at the dinner table.
0: Exactly. No, no. I'll, I'll keep. Let's go to that Australian thing again with with the Wanjina. Okay. The myth goes that uh, uh, the Wanjina are rumored to have come from the sky, live under the water, and have full mastery of the water. Now wait. We talk about unknown submerged objects today, where. Ships and possibly beings, uh, reside underwater, probably to hide from us, because as I've always said, they go where we are not. And where we are not is in the deep ocean. And based on what I have, my understanding of how they may travel, this is a theory and something I've been talked about all over the country, I think they could be there and not have any ill effect on them because of the nature of the way they, they work. And it is interdimensional. How interesting, right? Now, the Wanjana myth goes on to say that these two boys in the Darwin region, the Kimberley region of Australia, actually, uh were torturing an owl. And the Wanjana, in retribution, wiped out their villages with uh a, a tsunami because of their mastery over the water. Now, could that just be a tsunami that made it and got legs and became a myth? Yeah. But the Wanjana drawings are still in the caves. Those aren't myths. Okay, they're part of a mythical, mythical structure. And when you look at an owl, if you look at an owl, you can, if you squint, see a gray alien. Because they have the big eyes and they have that small face, right? That is what could be what's called a screen memory given to the people that are viewing this. So I'm really perplexed and fascinated by the, the, the Mothman. Uh, and other things, other creatures rumored to exist. And so uh, rather than just discount them as silly and stupid, right, which is just the arrogance of science, I'm a science guy, so if you're going to be arrogant about it, well, you're not going to get very far because you have to be open, right? And I, I think you, you probably both agree with that.
2: So we know that there's been Mothman-like sightings across the country. Um, do we know if there have been other countries around the world that have reported similar things? I, I feel like that's one thing I haven't heard.
0: That's a good question.
2: Ben, do you know anything about that?
0: He's, he's contemplating.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good question. He's on un- a of words. I agree with you. Sorry about that.
1: Hey. I, uh, <laughs> I took a call from Susan Spooler, um, which look at that, Susan. We got a <laughs> I can give you a spot right away. So she uh, she has a couple of books uh, from Nick Redfern to to offload, and she has them at her website, which is uh, FlagstaffDowsers.com, and you can you can buy the books there. Now I, I apologize. Uh, being a producer is a handful of work sometimes. So, <laughs> I can see that. So I so if you can catch me up on what was being talked about, I apologize.
2: Well, I had posed the question that you know we we know that there are Mothman sightings from other parts of the country. You know, I've heard of people in Maine having similar sightings, and I think Michigan <laughs> and, and other areas in the U.S. But have we heard of Mothman sightings in other parts of the world?
1: Oh, actually, I, I sort of. Um, it's 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 more of like a you know a, a hearsay type thing, which um, yeah I, I brought up a little, little earlier, which was the uh, the, uh, the Chernobyl incident. In Ukraine, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, there supposedly there was there was some there was something seen in the smoke over um, reactor four. Uh, you know that there was a, a figure that could be seen or or whatever. But you know, it's with with any sort of tragedy like that, it's it's like you know you you can kind of you you can read into things a little too much. I think. Um, yeah. It, but it's you know I've I've uh, that's the only thing I can think of off the top of my head because um, the yeah. majority of it was any of the information really has kind of come from you know point pleasant because that's kind of like where the the i think i think maybe the, where the term was coined is probably why we don't really hear about it elsewhere you know what i mean it's like um you know if you don't know what to call something you know and you see something like that you know what do you say about it it's i think that that kind of has a, has a little bit to do with it Because if you don't know what to call something, you're like, oh, well, I guess it's just one of those things. And you know, years down the line, somebody calls it, I don't know, you know, chupacabra or or whatever, and you're like, oh, that's what I saw. (laughs) It could be, it could be one of those deals too, because it's still like a relatively new term, I'd say. I mean, it's only within the last what, like, mm, sixty-ish years, and and because of that, it's like, you know, it's kind of hard to nail down if you will, like, you know, what's what's kind of going on with it. So I, I think that, that half the problem is the term for it. Because I've heard the term, like I said, you know, the term Thunderbird as well, where, you know, you mm. see giant birds or whatever, and it's always like some, sometimes, I don't know if they've ever been near cataclysmic events, but, you know, giant bird sightings have happened. You know, even here in Rhode Island, we've, we've had a few. It's, you know, you could lump them in if you really wanted to, but it's, you know, it's the terms that kind of come come with it, right? It's like, um, like you know the term upright canine cryptid you're hearing a lot more about that now and it's like oh what a werewolf and it's like you know you, people hear the term and there's a lot of baggage with it because it's right. like oh what is what is, what is this like you know teen wolf or something like no it's did it, 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 people try to come up with terms to see what they see and because you know we don't really have anything to kind of compare it with i think you know, unless well, you're you, unless you're in the field, you know, then we are like, ah yeah. we have an idea of what this is. Other than that, it's like, you know, what do you call it, you know?
0: You know, you mentioned um uh, baggage, we'd like to say the werewolf stories and things. Um I mean that's unfortunately um that comes with all kinds of things when we're whether we're talking about UFOs, unknown submerged object, USOs, um And I think that, for instance, is why, and just sort of an aside, I think that's why they changed the term the government did from UFO, which connotes tinfoil hats and people that are silly, okay, they changed that to UAP. Mm. They rebranded it. And once they rebranded it, they could call it anything, they could do anything they want with it. And once it became an official term that the U.S. government uses, now... Now, we see that UAPs are taken seriously, whereas people with UFO sightings are still considered a tinfoil hat crowd, right? Yet, they're the same exact thing. Huh. And the USO topic is now, you know, unknown submerged objects are now uh taken seriously because they don't have the F in there, UFO. UFO has just been culturally branded to be silly, and so whenever they talk about a UFO conference on the news, you see the little green blow up aliens all the time. Right? And the the news hosts go, ha, ha ha, well there's a UFO conference happening in wherever Okay, it's like that's what they do. They they laugh it off. But if it was a UAP conference, then it'd be like, well there's an unknown anomalous or unknown aerial phenomena conference occurring in Detroit today and the scientists are going to talk about it in a very serious way. I mean, they treat it totally differently because they don't know how to treat it like something silly because the government branded it this way. So with the Mothman, maybe they need to uh, brand it as something that they can uh, – maybe an unknown entity or or some kind of uh EBE or something, um, you know, and – Again, if you go into the paranormal with it, paranormal also connotes silly. I'll give you an example. When MUFON um, decided to uh, work with Congress and talk about UFOs or UAPs, as it became, um, they were very specific. Congress was very specific. We don't want paranormal crap. Just UFO, just UAP stuff, okay? We don't want to hear about the paranormal stuff. But wait today's paranormal could be tomorrow's science, right? Mm. So w- why did they shut it off, right? And, of course, MUFON said, well, okay. I mean, if that's going to be the way for you to keep listening to us and, you know, uh, we can share data with you, then I guess we have to do that. And so they did. Um, but they don't actively enforce their their people from not talking about paranormal activities because they know that today's paranormal could be tomorrow's science. And so they're not going to... They're not going to dispute it, and they're not going to really fight it, but they're not going to talk about it when they go talk in front of Congress as they have.
2: Hmm. Interesting to me that, you know, Mothman just needs a new marketing agency. That, you know,
0: Isn't that weird?
2: It, it just it shows you the, the malleableness of our society and what we will and will not accept and um, just how wishy-washy we all kind
0: of are you're, sometimes
2: you're, with this stuff.
0: You're so right, Valerie. You're so right. And, uh, in this commercial society where it was Black Friday and it'd be Cyber Monday coming up. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, that's tomorrow. Oh boy, we better shop. Okay. Um honestly, uh, what's it gonna be? You know, uh, uh Tire Tuesday? <laughs> you know, it's, everybody buys your tires. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah, they keep that commercial train rolling, right? right. And, um it, it comes down to who clicks the most, who links the most, who, who repeats it the most. And what products get sold on on which shows and under which circumstances. Mm. And so good, good performances, good shows, good entertainment and good data is sometimes way overshadowed by the commercial need. And so they put some cheesy thing on, okay, uh, that requires you to laugh at the green blow up aliens. All right. And that becomes the big money maker. So they continue to do that. So it's tough. We're fighting an uphill battle this way um, when it comes to this stuff. So when you hear about Mothman, it sounds silly. Mm. And people say a thing with red eyes and a cape. Woo-hoo, hey, a superhero. No, it's a phenomenon that's occurring. And if more than just five people are seeing it then in, in one location, then I think it merits investigation, right? If people are seeing it all over the country, if there's rumors of seeing it in Chernobyl, if there's rumors of having seen it elsewhere... Okay, it requires examination. I've been fighting the arrogance of science for decades, and I can tell you that science remains arrogant in some ways, but in many ways they're opening up. Mm. And having an open mind is extremely, extremely important. And I don't know, Ben, I don't know, Val, I just think that um,
1: uh, our open minds are are probably uh, a good thing to have right now. Mm. And speaking of open hey, minds, hey, it's you. time for our break. And so you are listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Uh, well, minus Paul today, but with Mark D'Antonio and Valio, Valerie LaFasso, if I can speak correctly. And we'll be right back here on WON AM and FM. Christmas in New York. The Northern Rhode Island Council of the Arts is hosting a bus trip to New York City on Saturday, December 17th. We'll get you to New York and the day is yours. See the sites, visit a museum, see a show, whatever you like. The day is yours. Tickets are $90, and the bus will leave from the St. Anne and Cultural Center parking lot at 5.30 a.m. For more information or to reserve your seats, email nrica at nrica.org or call Sharon at 401-767-7432. Local
0: and live at 99.5 FM.
1: Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Ben Eno, Mark D'Antonio, and Valerie LaFasso. It takes a lot of people to fill in my dad's shoes, doesn't it? And uh, Yes, it does. We are coming to you live from WON AM and FM here on the corner of Park Ave and Kennedy Street here in Rhode Island's brisk Blackstone River Valley. And we are talking about a few interesting things, which is, you know, Mothman mythos and the implications of language and how that matters and how we perceive things so really this this show is kind of mutating into something I didn't expect so yay good job everybody round of applause for all <laughs> of us um, and that is interesting because language does really matter and how we perceive things because there's four ways and I've talked about this before and people have heard this before ad nauseum it's very important so I apologize um, that there are four ways in which uh, we organize reality as humans uh, art language music and ritual. And those are the four ways that we kind of order reality around us. You know, we, we, we use words to, to look at things and, and give it an order. You know, there's a sign in front of me. I know the sign says, you know, navigate credit union broadcast studios, WON AM and FM radio. I see, you know, the, the board in front of me with the lights on it so I can control its, its volumes, how it, how it gets put out, et cetera. And, yeah, you know, these things are, are are important because it's how we organize, how we understand the world around us. And you know, speak yeah, you know, when we when we talk about the word UFO, unidentified flying object, if you take it it take it out of its its UFO box, it's such a fascinating way to explain a phenomena. And then by switching it, I initially thought it was it was sort of like you know, he who controls the language controls the world type thing, right? You know, UAP. Uh, We're going to switch the definition of it. We're going to change the name, and then we change how people view it. I thought it was malicious at first, but maybe it's not quite malicious, or at least, you know, not intentionally. Because in a Mm -hmm. way, it does lend credence to it, as you said, Mark. Because it's, okay, now we can discuss it, you know, in a learned setting, which I personally believe academia has, you know, pros and cons, and, you know... So I, yeah, I I can take I can take it or leave it personally because it can turn into a big echo chamber. Um, yeah, well it, you think about this, okay? You, you talk about art imitating
0: life, right? We, we've heard about that. We've heard that phrase a lot, right? But life imitates art too, okay? Now, art imitating life um, is something where you know you you see that. But then, for instance, when the Matrix came out, okay, and the Wachowski brothers did the Matrix, okay. Great movie, an alternate reality, you live in a pod, you got a thing stuck in your head, and you're just power for the alien civilization of of robotic AI okay, um, to survive. Well, you would not imagine how many new reports came in saying that the moon is a hologram, we live in a matrix, and people really believe this. So this is where now people are trying to make life imitate the art they saw. Okay, and that's something that you know you have to fight against because you know you, it's easy because the movies are made so well to to see this as a reality. Okay, um, and when we saw E.T., you know E.T. Phone Home, right? We love E.T. Great, he was great—a little cute little thing with a long head, Elliot, right? Great stuff. But we we. When that movie came out, we thought that aliens are benevolent and kind, right? And, oh, they just want to go home the cute little things. Then alien comes out. <laughs> and now you have a brain-eating alien. And it just, like, chunk out your brain. Mm-hmm. Okay? And then aliens became, ooh, really dangerous. And then Prometheus comes out. And these engineers built a human race. And they're going to destroy the humans because it was a failed experiment. What? And humans are like, no way. So you know you're looking at at all these different things and how movies have created narratives and actually created language, as you mentioned, around um, a myth or a, a fictional concept. You know now I can tell you this that uh, we see that sometimes uh, science fiction has become science fact, right? Mm. Okay. This thing right here, William Shatner would have loved this. (laughs) Scotty, Scotty, wait, wait, let me call you Scotty. I want to see your face, right? I mean, he can call and do a FaceTime call. He couldn't do that with the communicator in Star Trek in the 60s. Mm. But boy, was the communicator a massive, you know, engineering improvement in, in mentally for the audience to see. And it's possible that people seeing that said, hey, I wonder if we could actually do something like that. Right, and the next thing you know, that happens. I worked, as you know, with the with the great legendary Douglas Trumbull. Two thousand one, A Space Odyssey was Blade a phenomenal Runner. movie, Blade Runner, right? Exactly, Close Encounters. Okay, well, in two thousand one, A Space Odyssey, Caradalea is holding a piece of glass, and he's working it, and he's doing stuff on it, writing on it, and and watching and looking at different statuses for the discovery that they're on the ship. Doug is credited with creating the iPad concept because that's exactly what he had envisioned. So, um, now obviously, this far in the game, he doesn't get that kind of credit. Yeah. But he is credited with actually sparking the idea for the iPad. So movies do cause revolutions in industry and technology. Through the fiction comes the reality. And so it, I personally think that as humans, we cannot imagine something that's actually impossible to do. Okay? I don't think our brains are built that way. The brains are built out of the, con- the, the building blocks the universe provides. So I don't think there is a way for us to imagine something we're incapable of. I know that sounds strange. I mean, I imagine myself being able to touch my elbow to my mouth. You know, obviously, there are those types of limitations. But uh, mental, technological limitations, if you can imagine it, it can probably happen in some way down the line, right? And I know that seems like a digression, but it really isn't. We're talking about Mothman. And so is there a creature that evolved in the universe that made it here? In ways we can't yet understand, but ways that I do talk about as a possibility, uh, and it got here and it would look very different, but keep in mind that the signal that life is on this planet started rising in our atmosphere over two billion years ago. That's oxygen. If you're carbon based, which the majority of life in the universe probably is made of, it's the most, it's the fourth most abundant element in the universe, so it stands to reason life's made of carbon, it's the most flexible element in the entire periodic table. If that's the case, then we have creatures up to two billion light years away that might have seen the signal from this little tiny blue dot, right? And if that's the case, Ben, who knows what kind of creatures might have come here.
2: Mm.
0: You know, they might not look like the greys. The greys might be just one kind. I think they're from uh, – the greys are probably from a planet that has a red dwarf star, Okay, because they're going to be tidally locked, have one face always facing their star, and as such, maybe they're from the dark side where they need big eyes to see better, you know, or the sunset side where they need big eyes to see better. See, so honestly, I think there is um, some potential truth here, and man might be a different type of creature that evolved somewhere else in the universe. It doesn't always have to be a great alien, right? Mm. So... That's just a thought, so it kinda lends credence and that's why I don't dismiss it out of hand. I used to, but I don't do that anymore because I think it, it, it requires you, if you're really, really interested in the science, it requires you to remain open to other possibilities.
1: Mm. What do you think, Val? Any, any
0: thoughts? Well,
2: first, I really appreciate hearing that from a scientist, cause... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can be pretty stuffed short sometimes. Science minded people is that they just will not believe anything that isn't already widely accepted and they're not open. And that d- does seem so counterintuitive and counterproductive to being a scientist. Um, but I want to go back to art imitating life and life imitating art because how do you know which came first? You know, exactly. there's so many stories of people who think that they were encountering ghosts until they hear somebody tell an abduction story and they're like wait a minute no that's exactly what happened to me but i thought it was a ghost because they didn't have any other context mm. until this other story came about. Know, excellent it's, point. It's so hard to track, you know, which came first the chicken or the egg um, in these cases. So um, that's what i was thinking about when you were when you were talking about that but um you know, and,
0: I, I, I I like that very much, Val, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean to cut you off. I'll send it right back to you. But but it's it's true what you say. Okay, <clears throat> the, the arrogance of science precludes them sometimes. Not all of them. I I know some very very open-minded science people. Okay, but it often precludes them from thinking clearly about possibilities. Right. Oh, and incidentally, uh, the chicken came first, just, just so you know. Uh, the, the, the egg was an evolved way for the... Well, never mind. Okay.
2: It's a whole different show. <laughs>
1: Sorry, I didn't mean again. I'd like to think Crazy. that the egg crashed down from space and, you know, just, it just happened to happen, you know? <laughs>
2: Curled up out of the ocean. It's,
0: it was a mutation. It was a mutation followed by an adaptation. The egg was a mutation to the way uh, birth was done by these particular creatures way back when, before we knew what they were. They weren't chickens. Okay, and so that, and uh, they were reptiles, and that became uh, a way to protect the young while they're being birthed and also protect them from the elements of a changing planet. Uh, The live births um, were not um, evolutionarily um, satisfactory for continuance.
1: Well, speaking of satisfactory evolution, are you two work, working on anything? Got a, got anything that's got, coming down the pipeline? Tell us a little bit about you know what what you're working on these days, where people can find out more about both of you. So, Val, you first.
2: Um, yeah, thank you. Um, so, I am mostly on Facebook. I'm currently working on a website, but that is slow going at the moment. So, you can find me on Facebook <laughs> under Valerie Lofaso, author and empathic medium. Um, it has information about my books. I'm primarily working on fiction stuff right now. I have the fifth book in my um, Tangled Web series is in the works. And I'm also working on a choose-your-own-adventure style Ooh. story, kind of a standalone with the main characters from my series. Um, I do have some historical fiction also um, in in the planning process. And, of course, I have contributed a chapter with my own UFO and alien encounter um, to your next book, Mm. Behind the Paranormal Three Uneasy Skies. We're working on it. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully next year we'll see that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, Hopefully, fingers crossed. (laughs) What about you, Mark? What are you working on? Uh, Well, I've got uh, talks I'm doing. I've I've got a a
0: book out uh, called uh, The Populated Universe. It's on Amazon and so forth. Uh, a lot of people like it. It's actually a, a lay uh, person's, a layman's uh, view of the universe and how life started here and how come it's elsewhere. It really the premise is life in the universe is the rule, not the exception. So uh, that that book talks about that and takes people through a, a logical way to understand that. I've had nine-year-olds read this book and actually understand uh, many of the concepts in there. Not everything. And adults love it as well because it's written for everybody to to enjoy. And I got a lot of my original artwork in there, whoop-dee-doo, but I didn't find it anywhere else. Um, So you can also, as an astronomer, you can find me at SkyTourLive.org. We're a a 501c3 organization that promotes education in astronomical topics. And um, we have a remote observatory in the Arizona desert that we access on clear nights. We have a second one going in in the Arizona desert. We have a third one out here in this uh, area. Um, and you can see the telescope for it right there. It's a little bit in the dark right there. Mm. Um, but, uh, we actually do, um, these beautiful, it, it's, it's wonderful because, let me just highlight that. As I can see it back there a little better, except for me. Alright, so basically it allows us to, uh, it allows us to, uh, to see If if I could just see me, uh, it allows (laughs) us to. uh, Sorry, it allows us to um, uh, showcase the astronomical world to people and and show them the night sky live. So they see these beautiful things in the night sky, and it's absolutely live. It's happening as we as they speak, and uh, we take people through what they are, what they're seeing, and and how uh, how wonderful it could be uh, to uh, enjoy uh, education in the universe, even in the dark. (laughs) <laughs> cool.
1: Well, speaking of education, um, I, I thought of this while while we were kind of discussing. And I think this is probably a good this will probably end end us out on the show. But I, I have a question to pose for both of you, which is, um, do either of you either of you think you know agree disagree that how we view reality is sort of the main hurdle for how we negotiate sort of the bridge between what we call you know. Well, I guess unknown phenomena, right? If we're going to use terms like you know paranormal, et cetera, if we want to just kick that right out the door, this this sort of unknown phenomena and science is is it how, how is the experience of reality the big hurdle, like the subject-object problem?
2: Well,
0: um, I, I kind of get the the question. It it really, I think, comes down to how we perceive the passage of moments one to the next, so time, right? Mm. Um, we talk about the, the space-time continuum when we talk about space, and most people have no idea what the words space-time mean together. And so that that's a whole education in itself to understand that actual context and what we mean when we say the fabric of space-time. Shh. Space is fabric? I thought there's nothing out there. You can say it's a vacuum, but it's not like there's nothing there in that vacuum. And that's that's the thing that makes people crazy, because if there was nothing there, then gravity wouldn't work out in deep space. You wouldn't get pulled toward a distant object because there's nothing between you and that object. But how's that force acting? That force is acting on you. Well, it's acting through a medium of some kind, Mm -hmm. and that's the fabric of space that gets warped, right? So how we perceive reality is very different. We have eyes that see in the visual spectrum. That's a very, very narrow spectrum. James Webb way out here, okay? And, and the, uh, other telescopes like the, uh, the, uh, the, the x-ray uh, telescope, Chandra, looks way out here, actually way, way out here. So, it's in seeing the universe in light that we can't see in. So, our perception is a tiny little narrow band called the visual spectrum. And everything we do tends to be hovering around that and what our eyes pick up and what our instruments can pick up out here and out here. But there's also more frequencies out there than than we know. We can't go all the way into the deep infrared. James Webb would love to. Uh, it gets very really far, but it can't. So our reality is skewed a little bit by our small window into the universe that we can actually uh, really see into.
1: What do you think, Val? Do you think that the issue is perception, or perhaps? Is it, is it more how we view reality as a whole is, is the issue for negotiating the gap?
2: Well, you know, I think it's, it never ceases to amaze me how our individual perceptions of things, you know, the three of us here, we are all experiencing this show very differently. And the people listening are experiencing it differently. And the people that watch mm-hmm. it or listen to it later will experience it differently. You know, how many times have you sat at the Thanksgiving table and you're talking about a memory of something you all did together, but, you know, Aunt Pat remembers it one way and Cousin Kathy remembers it another way and Grandpa remembers it another way, you know, but we were all there at the same moment. How come we perceive things so differently, Mm. you know, because we all have filters and personal beliefs that may be very different from the other people and, you know, I just... And there's so much coming at us all the time. I kind of think, you know, more so now than, like, you know, when when we were children, we're being inundated constantly with things from our cell phones, from advertisements on the side of the road, from cars, from radio. You know, it's just, it's always, stuff is constantly bombarding us. And I think we're kind of <laughs> trying to protect ourselves half the time. And not see things, and so we have these blinders on, and then we miss things because mm. we're we're trying so hard to not be overwhelmed with so much stuff that is coming at us, and then then we miss possibilities. I think um, I don't know if that answers your question at all. <laughs>
1: I don't think there really is is a is a sort of accurate answer to it. It's. Um, because it's, it's true. I mean, we all we all view things differently because <laughs> effectively the, the problem of the unknown is the subject-object problem, right? You know, we know there's an objective reality and there's a subjective person viewing it and then there's a third party that's, you know, prior experience, depending on how you interpret it, that, that you know, filters how we perceive the objective reality. We know something's happening, but how it's interpreted is is sort of the 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 crux of it, which I think is is important to note, but um the reason I bring it up is one of the 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 biggest things I personally have have found over the last few years that's been very helpful, my my dad you know would you know was like oh multiversal awareness you know, all et cetera et cetera, et cetera, and I always had an issue with okay well, you know I know it's there, right I know that there's 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 something else going on but how does one experience it? Well, you're always experiencing it, but okay, but how do I understand it? And I always had a hard time wrapping my brain around it. I I kind of understood it, and I I didn't really think too much about it. I think that was the thing. But I kind of did a little bit of um, research into, you know, sort of um, phenomenology, which is sort of the study of human experience. Um, And there was a really fascinating... He's still alive. He's this this philosopher in Canada named Charles Taylor, and he had has this really interesting theory that yeah I've I brought this up several times again. Apologize, I just find it very important that there are sort of two versions of of how we as humans have viewed the self over the last you know millennia, right? So there's sort of the the modern buffered self (laughs) where you know we put a, a buffer between us and the world around us where we step back and we kind of analyze and, and pick it apart and we're we separate ourselves from the world in a sense. And then there's the porous self, which is sort of the pre modern way in which, you know, we view the world, where the border between oneself and the world is sort of fluid and and how one participates in the world is is very fluid as as opposed to like, uh I'm gonna step back and, and really analyze this. It's it's more of a you know it's more more of a give and take with the world around us. And I I bring that up because I've I've really been into um, ancient mythologies and and how, you know, they viewed the world because it's like, okay, well, they didn't know the color blue existed until 2,000 years ago. So, I mean, you know, their experience of reality must have been incredibly different. I mean, Homer referred to the Mediterranean as the Great Burgundy Sea. So it's like, you know, what else were they experiencing differently? Because I think we have this this idea that, you know, oh, well, they're like us, but they don't have iPhones. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's sort of a misnomer because they thought of things very differently. And it's very obvious they thought of things differently because look at their infrastructures, <laughs> right? They lasted forever. And meanwhile, we can't build a road that lasts more than 50 years. It's how they viewed the world around them was very different. Even in, not even in just you know mundane senses, there there was a sort of sense that there there were sort of these overlapping layers of reality that were constantly going on, and there was no separation between the political, the mythological, the mundane, you know, the spiritual. It was it was all it was all there. It was all all in one one sort of package. You know, when they revered the emperor as a god, you know, it wasn't like oh well, you know, he's just a really powerful guy. That was part of it. But, you know, being godlike was exerting your will on the world, which is like a godlike thing. You know, Julius Caesar wasn't hailed as a god because he was a good guy. <clears throat> he was hailed as a god because he you know killed six million Gauls and enslaved six million more. You know, it's it, it's this whole idea. And we still do the same thing today. We don't know it. We don't call it that. You know, idolizing someone, right? You know, we look at the root of the word, (laughs) idol. You know, we have, we, we have people that do that today. You know, your, your Jeff Bezos's, your Elon Musk's, we have, we do the same thing. You know, we have different words for it, but the, the story, the human story doesn't change. You know, it's all the same stuff over and over and over and over again. You know, hence why, here's my point. We have all of these, Things, UFOs, Mothman's, Bigfoots, you know, your upright canine cryptids. We change the words around, but it's all the same stuff. You know, you go to like Latvia or like deepest darkest Romania, vampires and werewolves are very much a thing. You know, you you talk to anybody out there, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's that's a real thing, and that's that's just what it is. You know, it's a part of daily life, and they, you know, it's 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 the same thing. If you go to deepest darkest India, they're like, oh yeah, Haruman. yep, that's a thing. Yeah, it's, it's it's just, it is what it is. But for whatever reason, here in the Western world, we just can't, (laughs) we can't wrap our minds around it. We're like, we have to figure it out. There's got to be some explanation. (laughs) And you know what? I think the thing is, yeah, sure, there might be science behind it. There probably is. We just haven't figured it out yet. But the thing that I can't get past is these things haven't changed. They've been here forever. They've been with us forever. (laughs) That's the big thing. And for everyone's treating it like it's new and it's, it's not. <laughs> Just because well, that, a symbol of a thing to, is a symbol doesn't mean it's not a thing. It's, and, and that
0: goes to my concept that, and that I said before and that was that, um, you know, it's, if it's happening all over the place, you have to consider that maybe there's some reality behind it, mm. even if it's a distorted reality, right? Um, but you
1: still want to get to the bottom of it. Exactly. And I think the first thing, is understanding how we experience it mm. before we even get anywhere else. Because yeah, you know, it's like you know, I don't think we have time to get into how how we interpret knowledge. But you know, it's it's important, right? You know, there's a difference between collecting empirical data and then having to interpret it. It's two different ways of viewing it, as the Greeks called. You know, you had um, uh, doxa, which is the knowledge of public opinion, and then um, epistemi, which is the knowledge of science, and they differentiated the two because it's like yeah sure you can get data and numbers but you still have to interpret it and that and which would be science of public opinion so here we are and that's i think it's important that we understand ourselves first before we can even get in to understanding the unknown and i think that's the part that we don't know mhm i agree with that
2: yeah well said ben thank you
1: i think a lot about this probably too much And, and on, on that note about thinking about a lot of things, we can hop into our announcements here. So over the next few months or so, we've had to kind of push it off to the new year. Um, my dad and I will be working with Reverend Michael Carter of Ancient Aliens on a very special podcast with new information that he's uncovered on the Ancient Aliens theme, which he has been on Ancient Aliens many, many times. He's a wonderful man. And we, we had him on for the, um, Western Connecticut uh, UFO conference hosted by the Danbury Public Library uh, a couple of weeks ago. And that was a wonderful time. And we'll be doing some work with him. You can check out the full video when we eventually post it at our Behind the Paranormal YouTube channel. And there will be more information to come on that.
2: All right. Visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find nearly 1,200 hours of regular shows and special broadcasts since 2008 from CBS Radio Achieve Radio, and here on W-O-O-N, AM, and FM. Also hear many of these broadcasts on the major podcast platforms including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube.
0: And Ben, I'm curious what you're doing next week.
2: Well,
1: uh, we'll get there eventually because my dad forgot to put in the part about our charity page because we have mm-hmm. a charity page on our website that we've they're all charities that we've we vetted, that we know, that we've, that we've um, been working with for a, a long time. That we that we really like to have with have with us and, and mention because you know what what's the point of having a platform if you can't try and do something and give back with it uh, you can always check out the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America that's on there the Sisterhood of Ground Zero um, there's also Hope for Hilldale Cemetery which is run by our good friend uh, Tom Spitaleri. And a whole bunch of other charities on there as well. You can also find our books on there, behindtheparanormal.com. You can also check out Amazon as well. Um, you can find all the books my dad and I have have written over the years, including the things that he has written without me, which are a plethora. And there's there's all sorts of interesting things. And eventually, hopefully, we will be <laughs> working on our on our next book, um, which Valerie is a part of as well. So we'll we'll get there when we get there, I suppose. And uh next so that would be so next week, jeez, we're already plowing through uh November and we're gonna be on in December, so December third, um, we're gonna have British researcher Mark Ollie on with us uh to talk about UFO crash debris and perhaps we should call it UAP crash debris. And then we <laughs> can have a nice little rhyme in there. And then Tim Schwartz will also be with us to co host and he is he's he's a really great guy. I like I like working with him a lot. So, Valerie, do you have a quote for us?
2: I do. We will leave you today with a thought from Albert Einstein. There are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. Hmm. Very nice. Thank you. And I'm Valerie LaFaso.
0: And well done, Val. And it was enjoyable to be here. I'm Mark D'Antonio.
1: And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us in a great call. Return journey. to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of